All right. Good morning, everyone. I don't know if... Did anybody announce what we were doing this morning before, or is this just a surprise? Okay, we'll make it a surprise. Um, On occasion, I think it's useful to have an opportunity to just have an informal uh, question and answer time. And that's something that, uh, that I love doing. And so I didn't give you any warning. I probably should have. Um, so I'm going to pray in a moment. And um, just start thinking about questions, uh, Bible questions, applied theology, uh, whatever you want. And let's just start a discussion. Uh, we don't get to do this enough in the church, um, especially as churches grow. You know, when your church has seven people in it, that's easy, but uh, we've grown beyond that. And so um, just be thinking about questions. Um, if you want to make it fun just to see if you can stump me, which isn't that hard to do, uh, you, we can do that as well. But uh, preferably something that is on your heart that, that you truly have a desire to learn and understand. Um, uh, and I will ask somebody in a moment, think, think about this, that when, not if, when I don't know the answer to something, if somebody would write that down, then I'll make sure and come back with an answer at a later time. So why don't we pray and let's think about what the Lord would have us to discuss this morning. <clears throat> Lord, it's always with such joy, such gratitude that we come together on the Lord's day. We celebrate Jesus Christ. We celebrate what he's done for us on the cross. We're so thankful that you have chosen to forgive us of our sins. You could have obliterated the human race at any time and been completely within your rights to do so because we have rejected you. There is no one who does good. No, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. We have rejected you wholesale. And yet in your grace and mercy, you have called us to salvation. You have enlivened our hearts. You have regenerated those that you have chosen. And we're so thankful and so grateful to you. We thank you for this Christmas season, Lord, that uh, reminds us that a little baby was born who came not just to live a perfect life, but to die a death on our behalf. That He didn't come just to be a good man and a wonderful teacher, but he came to be a sacrifice to satisfy your perfect wrath and to bring reconciliation between us and you. We're thankful, Lord. We pray that our discussion this morning would be centered on Christ, centered in your word always, and honoring and glorifying to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Is there anybody here who is of a secretarial bent that could take some notes that used to be? All right. If there's a question I don't feel like I've answered adequately, I'll I'll let you know and you write it down. Probably be most of them, so just keep writing. All right, we're going to just start an informal time, and we'll just see where this, where this goes. We don't do this very often, um, but we just wanted to have an opportunity to... to uh, and you can ask a question, or you can just ask me to comment on something, whatever you want. I'm going to fall over a poinsettia. That'll be interesting. So, All right, raise your hand or shout or something. Ben. John 8, yeah. Is that 8 or 7? Yeah. That is an interesting question. Boy, you're going to make me start right away with New Testament introduction <laughs> stuff. Um, all right, how long do we have? Okay, <clears throat> let's, let's back up. In... Uh, 40 AD, somewhere in there, the Lord began having gospel writers and New Testament writers record um, some of their letters, some of their thoughts. And I don't know that uh, they always knew it was scripture. For example, we know that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote numerous letters to the Corinthians, at least four that we know of. Um, Only two of them, the Lord put in the canon of scripture. So, but I'm going to get to your question. We're going to kind of wander all the way through China and back to get there, though. Okay. So, as um, as the Lord was inspiring His Word, of course, the last book we have written about 95 A.D. would be Revelation. Um, the Bible is very clear. That's the last one. Don't add to it. You know, the Bible begins at the beginning and ends at the end. Anybody who wants to add to it, that doesn't make sense. Well, how do you disseminate the Word of God? 
Well, these letters were meant to be circular letters, many of them. For example, um, one textual issue is what we call these uh, difficulties. The beginning of the book of Ephesians, in most of the uh, more reliable manuscripts, let me find it here. Most of the reliable manuscripts... Our Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Most reliable manuscripts say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And there's no Ephesus in there. So how do we know that this is a letter to the Ephesians? Well, the Ephesian church was a central hub where there were lots of little churches all around it. And so um, our best guess is that it was meant for the church in Ephesus, but also to be a circular letter. And there's a lot of uh, theories. Uh, some even feel that some manuscripts were copied with blanks written in them, and the, the blank of the city would be filled in. And there, that's just a theory. But all that is to say, so the New Testament books, in order to, you circulated them first, but what's the natural thing you're going to do? You get a letter from the Apostle Paul, you think you're just going to wave goodbye to that thing and let it go? No, you've got people in your church who are going to copy it. So first we had copies of uh, individual books. We had copies of uh, sections. Um, to, to have a compilation of all of Paul's writings was very, very common. Um, by the way, uh, the book of Hebrews was almost always included with Paul's writings. I don't think he wrote Hebrews necessarily, but uh, in, in the early church, uh, that was a common belief. Um, the Gospels. As those were compiled, those were often put together, often with the, with the book of Acts as well. During this time, there were lots of other letters being written. There was somebody, maybe some group of somebodies, who was uh, writing a lot of things in Peter's name. There's a gospel according to Peter. There's the apocalypse according to Peter, which would be similar to the book of Revelation. Peter didn't write them. But it was very common to write something that you thought would be helpful to the church and put an apostle's name on it just to make it look good. Uh, there's a gospel according to Thomas as well that we don't uh, hold as, as canon. But as all these copies were being made, <clears throat> what's going to happen when you're making a copy, especially if you're not necessarily a trained scribe? What's going to happen? You're going to make mistakes, Yeah. There were various ways that you could copy. You could copy by having the manuscript here and you would look, copy, look, copy. Another common way, especially if you were in a hurry, was to get 10 people in a room and one guy reading the manuscript. Well, um, you know, the, the, the Hebrew word or the Greek word for camel and rope sound the same. And so you would have these mistakes that could happen as you copied. Okay, so we fast forward. We have today somewhere in the vicinity of 5,200 manuscripts, copies of the Greek New Testament. We'll just use that as an example. The art and science of textual criticism, and criticism doesn't mean in the bad sense of saying that the Bible is wrong, but textual criticism takes these manuscripts, looks at them, and uses a series of criteria and rules and logic uh, to determine what the best reading is. And there's some common rules for this. I'll just give you an example. If you have three readings, three particular um, versions of a, of a given verse, one rule would be the most difficult reading, the one that, that seems the, the hardest, is probably accurate. Because scribes didn't tend to make things more complicated. They tended to simplify. Um, and, and so you'd have a series of rules like this. Okay, so that brings us to, let's use John 8, the woman caught in adultery, as an example. There are categories of manuscripts, and they have uh, fancy names, um, uh, Codex Bizet, Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, Codex Sinaiticus is a, is a very, very reliable manuscript. Um, you have the really, really reliable ones because of their age and because of their uh, attestation, meaning how many people uh, read them and said, yes, this is accurate. Then you have the sort of okay ones. Then you have the ones that are just kind of cockamamie, strange versions that still have value because they have comparative value with the others. And this will all get to Ben's point here in a minute. John 8, this passage with a woman caught in adultery, 
the best manuscripts, the, the ones we rely on the most, it's not there. But because it's in so many other manuscripts, your English Bible will include it, and it probably has in brackets, it has it in brackets and maybe a note about it. Um, like mine says, some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Others add the passage here, or, and, they, and so they give you some, uh, some thoughts about that. As we were reading First and Second Samuel, you guys remember that um, we don't really know how long Saul reigned because in your Bible there may be a blank there because there, we, there's just not a number. And so we've just had to guess. So what do you do? We'll get back down to, to Ben's question. Uh, first of all, let me tell you this. The Bible you hold in your hand is completely reliable. Because not one of those texts, not one of those questions, not one of those textual difficulties, um, there's not a, a major doctrinal issue that rests on it. There's not a major life issue that rests on it. Um, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus riding on the ground, it's an interesting story. I mean, I remember coloring a coloring page about this in Sunday school. And then you grow up and find out that might not even be scripture. Well, there's no doctrine, there's no salvation issue that rests on this whatsoever. So what do I do when I get there? Um, most likely, I'm going to comment on it, but because so many manuscripts don't include it, I'm probably going to give it a little less weight because I'd rather err on the side of, of, of being conservative on that. I'll give you an example. Uh, we're going through the Gospel of Mark right now. The whole last section of Mark 16, I don't think is in the original. I don't think it's there. So it's kind of interesting uh, when we get there uh, the, the very last message we'll have in Mark is on a passage that probably is irrelevant. So that'll be interesting when we get there. So to answer your question, you use common sense. I am conservative about this. Um, and I'm going to do what you do with any other piece of truth. And that is I'm going to compare it with scripture. Um, the end of Mark 16 is just so bizarre and has uh, completely no uh, parallels to the way Mark wrote the rest of it. I mean, it looks like some guy 300 years later tacked it on, which I believe is precisely what happened. Um, so, does that answer your question? Probably wait. Ben's like, why did I ask that? that was a... Yeah. Anne. <laughs> you know, um, we didn't have an internet. We didn't have... Um, uh, the, the great seminaries that we've had over the centuries. Think about this. Ever, anybody ever play post office? You know where you, not post office, sorry, that's one that, yeah, yeah that's, that, there's all kinds of games. What's the one that, um, operator. operator, what is it called? Yeah, well, you know, where you're telling a joke and it goes, and it goes all the way through. Whisper, yeah, whisper whatever it is. There, there's all kinds of ways to do that. Look, by the time you, by the time you add, um, a century to 500 different manuscripts. Half of them have that part of Mark, the other half don't. They're, the church for most of its first 300 years is running for its life. People are dying left and right, literally by the millions. There are very few men who are sitting around contemplating their navel about the canonicity of Scripture. I mean, it took several hundred years before uh, some councils were able to meet to finally settle down and say, okay, let's, let's recognize the canon of Scripture. By the way, nobody ever decided what books were scriptural. They simply recognized them as already being authoritative. But by the time you get to that point, there are so many manuscripts with that ending in Mark. There's, there's like five different endings to Mark. Um, five different possibilities that who's going to be the one guy to decide to just take the eraser to all that because the possibility existed that it could be scriptural. Um, so by that point, uh, you just say, okay, we're going to include it. We're going to put it in brackets and put a big giant question mark next to it. And that's what, um, that's what it's going to have to be. Um, you know, it, it's kind of interesting to me. You guys remember some of the, uh, the interesting elements at the end of that chapter in Mark. Um, yeah, the snakes, they will cast out demons. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Okay, that's, that's fine. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. You guys ever seen on TV the, 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 the poison-drinking snake churches? 
all, boy, you hate to walk in and tell them, I hate to tell you this, but that's based on the passage of scripture that was tacked on later. Really? That's, that's disheartening. Um, even the, uh, in my name, they will cast out demons. One of the reasons, that's one of the reasons I don't believe the end of Mark is in the original. In all of the epistles, there is never a command to cast out demons. Did you know that? It's not there. We're not commanded to do that. What do you do with demons? You pray and you present the gospel to the person to whom the demon is, uh, is tormenting. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Great question. Who would have thought we, this early in the morning? Yeah. Blessing. I would say to narrow it down to its, to the most common denominator, blessing is what believers in God enjoy when they obey him. It's that simple. Blessing is what believers in God enjoy when they obey him. Um, God told Israel, if you obey me, I will what? Bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Um, does that apply to us today as Christians? To a certain degree, it does. Um, because if you choose as a believer in Christ to walk down certain paths of disobedience, then we know even from 1 Peter 3 that your prayers aren't going to be answered. And I would say blessing is a direct result of answered prayer as well. Um, but in its shortest form, blessing is what God gives to believers who obey him. And, and you've probably seen that in your own life. Um, if you know you're in a certain area of rebellion and you know it in your heart, and yet you're praying for God's blessing in other areas, you're wasting your breath. Take care of the rebellion first, and then pray for God's blessing. So, yeah, Daryl. Oh, you know, I, I tell you what, those are, those are wonderful opportunities because you'll, you'll all in your lives, you'll have people, unbelievers, who sense that there's something spiritual about you. They, they can't put their finger on it. They just know you're one of those church-going people. And, and it's so interesting. They, they might make fun of you. They might revile you. They might put you down. They might think it's kind of funny. But when they come to a crisis in life, you're the one they're coming to when they're at a point where they, they, they sense their need for God. So if somebody comes to me and says, would you pray for so-and-so, um, he's an unbeliever, or, or maybe it's an unbeliever asking for prayer for another unbeliever, absolutely. Here's the two things I'm praying for. I'm praying for God's common grace. I want their surgery to be successful. I want them to live. I want them to live a life that enjoys the blessings of God, that enjoys the rain, the sunshine, the food, the drink that, that the Lord gives as a common blessing to all human beings. But more importantly, I'm going to pray for specific grace. And um, I'm going to pray for that situation to lead that person to a point where they may come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And I'm not afraid to pray that in front of the unbeliever too. If somebody comes to me and says, pray for my mother, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try if I can, if I have a moment to say, well, why don't we pray right now? And, and then you can, you know, I'll pray for 15 minutes and I'll present the gospel. And the you know, Lord, thank you that John 3.16 says this and that Romans 8.28 says this and, and go through it. And um, so you use your prayer to present the gospel. I've never yet had an unbeliever when I'm praying with them stop me in the middle and say, this is dumb. I'm getting up. I'm getting out of here. There's something about them. Okay, we're praying. I got to stay here. You know, man, this guy's going on and on, but I got to stay with it. So you, you got them right in the palm of your hand. So pray for common grace and pray for specific grace. That's good. Nick, did I get enough to your question on blessing? Okay. Yeah, Rick. Oh, yeah, yeah. Has anybody ever read the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation? By the way, you can read, lead somebody to Christ with that. 
Okay, it's a reasonably okay. It's not a translation. It's a really bad copy of English versions, but it's not a translation. Um, but if they were being honest, then they would get, you know, to in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Their version says in the word was a God, right? That's how they get around the deity of Christ. Well, if they were being honest, they would have a little note next to the A that says this uh, this uh, article, not in any manuscript in history, um, if they're being honest about it. But yeah, the fact that your Bible is is honest and says this this particular portion has some questions to it. That is that is an affirmation, absolutely. Question. Your question, yes. Mm-hmm. And then in Zechariah 13 and 14, it says that two-thirds of Israel are going to be killed off, one third remains. And then in 14, it says all those who enter in um, celebrate the festival of booths. So in the New Covenant, in that expression, um, how does that work? And, and in Hebrews, it said there's, there's no more sacrifice ever. Um, Rick, I want to congratulate you. You have pegged the interpretive issue of the Old Testament. And the answer is, is I don't think anybody has any idea. Um, there is, the, the, the best theory I've heard is what they would call memorial sacrifices, that this is not a return to the Mosaic Covenant. This is a remembrance of what we used to have to do. The problem with that theory is it doesn't mesh real well with, with the book of Hebrews. The best answer I have is, is that, um, and I would have Anne write this one down, but I've read about it, and for 10 commentators, there's 10 different answers. Um, best answer I have is that that is one of those glorious mysteries that we're just going to have to let Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Um, but the memorial sacrifice has some merit to it, that uh, there is a sense in which that uh, during the millennial kingdom, that there is a return to this is this is Israel, what you should have been doing if you had been faithful, and there's a there's a real sense of that. So um, don't have a great answer for that one, but it is congratulations you pegged the interpretive issue of the Old Testament. So yes, and and then we'll come over here. The sense we get from Scripture is that the resurrection for all human beings, all humans were were made as immortal. We were made to have an immortal soul. Um, my sense is that um, the resurrection for the unsaved will be just as complete as for the saved. Now we wouldn't we wouldn't say they have a glorified body. I, I wouldn't use I wouldn't go that far. But they do have a body that is now built to experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. And I would say that logically, if they're going to experience the fullness of the wrath of God, they need to have the fullness of a body, the, every nerve, every, everything to do that. That's what I would say. Ask away. Um, oh, there it goes. It just went, no, this. All right, Don, you had to. Yeah. There seems to be a growing community of even good pastors that seem to be there isn't a, a relevance for Israel in the end times. Can you kind of explain that conflict that's going on there? You know, that's a, again, that's a, that's a giant topic, but essentially um, th- that's called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. And that all the promises given to Abraham and all the promises given to Isaac, all the promises given to Jacob, that uh, when, you know, one, when Israel went off the rails and God finally judged them and scattered them, and two, when they crucified their Messiah, that God said, that's it. Now, there is a sense, you can see this in, in Matthew 12 and 13, there's a sense in which when Jesus was on earth, he turned away from Israel and he did blind their eyes and he turned to the Gentile. Um... I just have a huge problem with that for several reasons. Um, the first one is 
that the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. What you have to do to believe that is now go back and allegorize and metaphor, turn into a metaphor, all the promises of the Old Testament to Israel. God promised Abraham there would be a nation coming from your body. Very, very specific about that. Anybody here actually physically Jewish? Okay. If we were to take replacement theology, we would say that we've replaced Israel and that God's promise to Abraham was simply a metaphor for what he would actually do through the church. The problem is, is God promised Abraham that there would be people from his body. This has massive implications. Replacement theology basically calls into question God's character. It calls into question the Bible. So how about this? Does this mean that when God promised me that my salvation is secure, that that might be metaphorical and that he might actually be talking about somebody else, but not me? If I'm a replacement theology guy, then I'm not going to trust in my, the assurance of my salvation. And now that leads me to a works-based salvation because I got to stay good just in case. Um, why they go that ro- route? It, it's, it's one of those things that there are theological snowballs that build over time. You can see this all the time. If you, if you get 30 commentaries from all different ages, go all the way back to say to Adam Clark 500 years ago and get commentaries uh, on a given passage, what you'll see, read the most recent one, you'll see them, they all quote each other constantly and it's like if enough commentators all quote each other, that, that somehow makes it right. Um, it, it's like um, one of my professors said, it's amazing that if you get a bunch of pieces of paper and put two pieces of cardboard on either end and stitch it together, it becomes magically true. We call those books, right? Um, replacement theology, at, at its worst, is dangerous because it leads you to a, down a road of not believing God's promises are true and, and allegorizing just huge chunks of Scripture. At its best, um, I think it's just sad because God does have a glorious plan for Israel. I mean, if you read through, if you read through Ezekiel and see the the promises to the the prince of David, the the prince uh, uh, who ultimately will be Jesus, um, have you ever thought about this? For example, Jesus Christ will reign on the throne of David. He's not currently. He's he's in a in a role of advocacy right now. What about David? He's going to be there. King David will be ruling, I I believe, part or all of Israel itself. Um, He is the ultimate Davidic king, except for Christ himself. All of the Old Testament saints, you mean to tell me that somehow God's not going to include them and that he's going to completely wipe away their Jewish heritage? He's going to say, you're not a Jew anymore, you're part of the church. I don't think so. God was highly invested in this nation. Um, I think one one place that comes from is frankly just an inability to see that somehow the church and Israel can coexist together. This is not rocket science. All right, you ready for this? Watch this. If you are a Jew and you get saved during the church age, well, okay, well, wait a minute. See, that that doesn't make sense because either you're part of the church or you're part of Israel. You can't be part of both. Well, why not? Anybody here ever know anybody with dual citizenship? Anybody have dual citizenship? Yeah. yeah. Oh, there, there we have some. Why not? Why can't I be part of the church and part of Israel? Double blessing. You know, you have a big gathering for Israel to celebrate in the, the millennial kingdom all that God had saved. And if you're a Jew, you get to be part of that. You have a gathering for all the Gentiles who have been saved. Hey, I get to go to that too. Tuesday night's Jew night and Thursday night's Gentile night. Yay! There's no problem here. And I believe that all of us will journey to um, Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. The, in the new, the new heavens and the new earth, what's the capital city? It is a Jewish capital, Jerusalem. So I, I don't understand why. I, I, I'm not smart enough to know why people go off that route, but I think it's just an attempt to be smarter than everybody else. But God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we, we enjoy the fruit of those. And I'm grateful for the Abrahamic covenant because it's what has brought us to Christ um, to be able to enjoy that. Too long of an answer. Sorry, Don. So.
You okay? You remember one, two, three, four. Okay, okay. and. Is it okay to be cremated? Has anybody here found a command in Scripture concerning your burial? I, I haven't. Um, and, you know, and the old thing is, you know, people used to believe that that's going to really hamper God's ability at the resurrection. Well, what about the what about that governor of Massachusetts who was buried under an apple tree and the roots got into his coffin and people were eating this governor for the next generation? <laughs> Is the Lord going to have difficulty with that? I don't think so. I, I personally, I don't want to be cremated, but I think there's a, that's a th- there's no command against it. We just stay scriptural and and not worry about it. Um, if the Lord is incapable of gathering the atoms of the dust of my body, then He's not capable of getting me home to heaven. So I'm not not concerned about it. So all right, then we had one, and then Dan, you had one. Well, since we're going to preach on Revelation 17 in a couple of months, I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> the great harlot, the great prostitute. Um, the, the great harlot would be um, the false religious system of the world. And every generation pegs that as either you know, Catholics or Islam or whatever. Um, I heard messages on this that, that the, the, um, the prophet of Antichrist is the Pope. And people have believed that for centuries. So, so who that, what that actual religion is, I don't know. I personally think it's an apostate Christianity. I, I think the great prostitute could be the church. Um, not church little c, not church big c. Simply because a prostitute is one who tries to act like a wife, but in sinful ways. So I, so I don't know. It's a great world religious system, though, um, in, in essence. General answer, that's about all we've got. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it probably won't be some weird offshoot cultish type of thing. I think it'll be very, very similar. It'll probably be, you know, people who meet in buildings just like this. So, then John, you had one? Any way to definition of an apostate? Let me answer your second question first. It always boils down to fruit. Always boils down to fruit. Um, do you desire to follow Christ? Well, yes, but no. Do you desire to follow Christ? Yes, period. Um, as, far as, as far as the definition of an apostate, <clears throat> I think one of the scariest passages in all of Scripture is Hebrews chapter 6. And let's take a moment and turn over there. It's funny, I was praying about this this morning, and I predicted Hebrews 6 is going to come up. And it did. And then, Kathy, I will get to your question, Okay. Hebrews 6 says this at the beginning, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ to go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now listen to this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a scary passage. And it is often used as a quote-unquote proof for the ability to lose your salvation. Well, let's just look at this first of all. Look at, um, I hate to get grammatical on you, but look at pronouns. Verse 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. By the way, what what the author is talking about here is you need to grow in the Lord. You need to grow and mature. Don't Don't just hang around with little sermonettes for Christianettes, but grow and mature. Let us. Um... Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those. There's a pronoun shift. 
It goes from us who are believers to those. It's a different group. If you have believers and you're talking about a different group, there's only one other option, unbelievers. So let's, let's go through this. Who have once been enlightened. What is that? That means that they have heard the gospel. They know the truth. They know what Christ did on the cross. They understand their need for repentance. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. I counseled with a young lady years ago and I knew for a fact she didn't know the gospel, knew for a fact that she was living a completely rebellious lifestyle, and yet all she could talk about was her church. Oh, I love my church. I just get such a good feeling every time I go there. It just makes me feel great. And you know what phrase she used? She said, it's like a gift from heaven to me. And I turned her to Hebrews 6, and I said, you mean like a heavenly gift? And she said, yeah, 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 that's me. I'm that person. And so then I showed her the context. She wasn't real happy with me after that. Okay, um, have shared in the Holy Spirit. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds like somebody who's saved. Shared in the Holy Spirit. If you are an unbeliever and you go hang around believers, you are sharing in the blessing that they enjoy. You, and if you've been around unbelievers, sometimes if they have a tender heart, they'll, they'll tell you, boy, I just, I love being with your family. I, I don't know why exactly I, I like being around you. To share in the Holy Spirit does not mean to have received the Holy Spirit. It means to be around him, to have a, a proximity. Have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Look, I've had plenty of unbelievers say, I don't believe half of what you just preached, but there's something about it that's really grabbing a hold of my heart. I've heard that numerous times. And the powers of the age to come. We're in an apostolic age. What do you think it would be like for an unbeliever to come in here and to see healing and to see somebody speaking in tongues as they did in the apostolic age? That'd be pretty amazing to have tasted of that. And the powers of the age to come, very similar. Every one of those phrases we just went through, nowhere else in the New Testament are those phrases used of a Christian. They're completely unique right here. The definition of an apostate is somebody who walks alongside Christians, walks alongside the church, does churchy things, does religious things. But then what do they do? Verse six, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. In other words, the author is saying they've been offered and shown everything there is to be offered and yet they have still rejected. And I pair this up also with Hebrews chapter 10 which is just as chilling. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, by the way, people will point out, well, wait a minute. Now he's using the pronoun we here in verse 26. Um, I don't think that the author of Hebrews has a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Therefore, we would say that he's being really nice and saying humans in general. Um, so the definition of an apostate is somebody who has uh, said they believe, they've done the things that look like they believe, they've done churchy things, but as John said, they went out from us because they were never of us. So follow up, and then Kathy, and then Dan. You know, there's no, I, I, I've looked, there's no button on anybody that says too late. And so, yeah, I'm going to pray for them all the way. I'm going to pray. I, I don't think so. I, I don't think so, but I, I have had a conversation with, with people before. I've sat down and said, and I've gone through Hebrews 6 and said, you have all the signs, all the hallmarks, and I'm going to pray for you, but I'm not going to invest my life in you anymore because there are people who want to know Christ, who want to follow him that I need to invest time in. And that's a pretty chilling conversation to have with someone, but it's necessary. So, and then I promise, Dan, let me come back to you. Kathy, you had a question about 15 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. 
What a great question. How much time do we have? We have a few minutes. Okay, I, you know, there's a lot of definitions of spiritualize. I'll tell you the one I'm familiar with. Okay, spiritualize, to spiritualize something is essentially to take a text of Scripture so far out of its context to make it mean something that, that you, it didn't have any meaning. Um, you know, for example, probably the champion spiritualized text in all the Bible, David and Goliath. Right? Anybody here ever heard a sermon on David and Goliath? Okay. You can slay your giants. Uh, you can come against those things. If your boss is mean to you, you can slay that giant. If you have debt, you can slay that giant. That's spiritualizing a text to, to make it mean something it didn't have anything to do with. If, if you're talking about being victorious through the power of God and trusting in him, certainly David and Goliath makes a good illustration. But the point of David and Goliath was not that you can slay your giants. The point of David and Goliath was that David was disgusted that Israel as a nation was not trusting Yahweh. And he said, who is this dog that comes against my God? And so the point of David and Goliath is that God wanted his nation to trust him. God wanted his nation to slay their enemies and they weren't doing it. David alone stood up and said, I'll take him on because you come to me with a spear, I come to you in the name of the Lord. So that's the point of David and Goliath. To spiritualize a text is, um, it's done every Sunday all over the place. Uh, It is to just rip it out of its context, essentially, and make it mean whatever you want. Yeah, Bob. May I just add that question that, uh, that came across my life about 45 years ago, and it doesn't work. It does not work. Yeah, it doesn't work. When you take the text out of context, you've removed all the power from the Word of God, right? Now you've just made it into Norman Vincent Peale. Um, power, positive living, okay? I don't need a Bible to do that. I can get that with, you know, the upper room or, or kind of shallow things like that. And Dan, you had a question as well. Yeah. A form of godliness. What do you think that means? Give me some ideas. A form of godliness, but denying his power. Yep, Sunday to Sunday. Go to church every Sunday. What else? Read your Bible. Yeah, that's a spiritual activity. Yep. You know, there was, um, uh, during the Reformation, there was, a, there was a group, and their name is escaping me. But they wanted to go so far away from liturgical churchiness just for that purpose, to make sure they know who was real. That, I mean, they would meet literally in rooms that just had blank white walls. And, I mean, they'd sit on the floor. They had no paraphernalia whatsoever just to get away from the ability to do anything churchy and to, to be a fake believer. A little bit of value to that. But yeah, Vern. Um, I think most of us are influenced by Pentecostal believers in one way or other. My question is, how would you effectively explain to a Pentecostal believer uh, the right interpretation of tongues as explained or presented in Paul's letters to the Corinthians? I... Th- I think, um, first of all, you have to determine if they're open to it. The difficulty I've had in those conversations is that generally, e- even if they're real believers, they still think I'm missing something. And they're, they're trying to you know, get me to get on the higher plane of spirituality. And it's really hard to talk to somebody like that you know, because they talk down to you like you're a kindergartner. Well, you just don't understand. And you just go, okay, Lord, just help me here. Um, if they are open to it, though, there's two easy things to talk about. First of all, you can take them through the book of Acts and just have them make observations about what happened, what it looked like. And then you simply ask the question, is it happening today exactly the way it did then? And I think anybody with half a brain would say, no, the things I see today are not anywhere near um, what's happening. In fact, um, that's a point that MacArthur makes, even with Reformed theology guys who are uh, what they call continuationists that the spiritual gifts have continued. In reality, they're not continuationists because across the board, they say what's happening today is not the same as what was happening in the New Testament. Therefore, you're not a continuationist and you have to say that something different is happening and then you get into real trouble with the end of Revelation. Don't add to this word. 
The other thing you can go to, though, is very simply ask them what is the purpose of tongues? What's the purpose? And they'll have all kinds of uh, answers. Well, it's to, you know, it's, it's for prayer and it's uh, to, you know, we, we, I mean, some of the answers are bizarre. That, you know, that's what our church does. Um, some will even say, well, that's how you prove you're saved. That's a whole different realm. But I would take him to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that simply states that signs and wonders were done as a confirmation of apostolic, uh, of the message. It's very simple. Um, that if I'm going to a completely pagan city, and I'm proclaiming a brand new truth that they've never heard about a savior, they've never heard from a heaven they've never heard of, um, and I'm able to suddenly speak in their language and they know I'm not from that area, they're going to listen. And it is, it is a sign uh, to the unbeliever to, to help them. So I would, uh, in summary, make them honestly compare is what's happening today the same as what happened in the New Testament and it's not an honest comparison will will show you that it's not and then secondly Hebrews 2 the purpose of those gifts was to confirm the gospel message so that's where you start then get them some books too because that topic is really opening a lot of doors John and I had a conversation with a friend for the last few weeks ongoing and uh, about you know he got healed here or there Mm-hmm. He tried to make Jesus a wonder worker. Yeah, absolutely. Make Jesus a wonder worker. And that wasn't why he came. That wasn't why he came. And by the way, it, you know, let's distinguish between the gift of healing, which which we don't believe continues, and God healing. You know, they always want to say, well, you don't believe God heals? It's not what I said. I believe he heals, and I hope he does, because I get sick a lot. But I don't need a healer. I just need healing. So, good question. Time for one or two more. Yeah, Isaac. Transfigured state. I don't want to give too much away because that's what I'm preaching on this morning. Um, <laughs> the word transfiguration, we get our word metamorphosis from it. And what it means is that your external person has now reflected your internal nature okay um what's the what's the great example from nature of a metamorphosis it's a butterfly right when the butterfly is inside the cocoon it's still a butterfly but it has not shown its external nature to be consistent with its internal nature the internal nature of Christ has always been, he, he is deity, he is fully God, he is fully all that God is. And yet when he walked on this earth, he didn't demonstrate that outwardly. During the transfiguration, for a brief moment, he demonstrated that outwardly, that his outward presence matched what his inward character is. Um, we would say, I wouldn't say necessarily he's in a transfigured state. I would say he is in a glorified state. He is in a resurrected body, precisely like the one you will have with one small difference. You won't have scars. He will. So, I, so transfigured, glorified body. Yes, he is physically in heaven, uh, which is very comforting to us. Heaven is not a cloudy, ethereal place that has no matter to it. If the intermediate heaven right now we know has a throne. We, it has a physical Jesus. It has trees. Um, it has all kinds of things in it. So it is a place. So yes, he is physically in heaven right now and always will be um, a physical being um, for all time. Great question. Yes, ma'am. Um, I heard a sermon once about hell and that people who are in hell don't That's interesting. Probably the person who's written the most on that is C.S. Lewis. Uh, who his, his theory is that, um, you remember the great bus ride that uh, the people in hell take to heaven and their conclusion is, I want to go back. Um, I don't want to be here. I wouldn't, say that, um, I, I wouldn't say that we can be super dogmatic, but probably our best example would be Luke 16. 
um, the, the, the rich man who is in Hades, and that's a whole other issue. Um, he, he doesn't necessarily want to be there, but he, he doesn't ever ask to leave. Um, so I, I would say at that point, I'm not going to climb into the mind of those who were there. I would say they're not having fun. Um, uh, we would never say, you know, I had an unbeliever tell me once, yeah, I want to go to hell. That's where all my friends are going to be. And, and that's the punchline to a joke, but he was really serious. Um, I don't think that'll be the case. I think hell will be the ultimate isolation from everything except two things. You will have, you get to face your own horrible selfishness for all eternity and you will get to face the wrath of God for all eternity. I don't believe that hell is defined as the absence of the presence of God because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, including hell to bring wrath. And we say, wait a minute, God is good. He can't be in hell. Listen, hell is not bad. Hell is good. It is an expression of the goodness of God expressed through his wrath. Okay, that's, that's a tough thing for us to swallow. But God made it for a good person or, or for, for a good reason. Um, so whether they want to be there or not, I don't think they want to be there, but I would agree they don't want to be in heaven. So. I think uh, Luke 16 tells us that they do. Yeah, I, I think that there's a sense in which there is a there is certainly a um, there is certainly a reference to the past. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a they wouldn't have a a, a grasp of why am I here. Um, they'll have a very very clear grasp of why they're there. Um, uh, no regrets. If there's any regrets, it would only be like uh, Judas had. It says that the Bible says that Judas had remorse. It doesn't mean that he had remorse to repentance. He was just sorry that things turned out the way they did. Um, but the great white throne, say that again? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Luke 16. Um, the, the, and we need to finish up here. Uh, the idea, I think, to keep in mind is the great white throne judgment is a time when the books are opened and all the judgments are given. Every way that you have rebelled against God will demonstrate his total righteous right and justice in in sending somebody to the lake of fire. So, well, we could go on all day. We better pray, though, okay? Father, thank you for this time. I thank you and praise you for a church that is biblical, a church that is so driven by the Bible, by your truth, by the truth of what you have presented to us. Bless our time of fellowship here for a few minutes, Lord. Prepare our hearts to come before you in formal worship to bring the sacrifice of the praise of our lips to you, Lord. Prepare our hearts in particular um, to receive the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray for any who may be here who are not certain whether they have repented, they have turned away from their sin and turned fully to Christ. Might they do that even this morning. Might they hear the gospel and respond. We pray in Christ's name, amen.